The season of Easter lasts for the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, and so we are here in the season of Easter, and it always feels easier and easier to be um, in the season of Easter as spring begins to emerge. The whole world starts to feel resurrection adjacent as we emerge out of the long winter. And so uh, we began Easter, obviously, with the with the empty tomb and the stories of Jesus's resurrection and then his resurrection appearances in the weeks after that occur in the gospel. But pretty soon we run out of these post-Easter resurrection appearances. And so the, the church calendar has us look back again at that week right before Jesus's death, what he was saying to his disciples in those last days as he, as he knew and was anticipating that it was his last days. So we get these little lectures, these monologues um, that really open us up to what Jesus was trying to share with us um, at that that critical time. Today's scripture passage takes place at the table um, on the evening of the Lord's Supper with his his disciples gathered round. And it really starts before the, the passage begins where Jesus sends Judas out. He sends Judas on his way. Judas, as we know, um, is going to head directly to the authorities and betray Jesus, and Jesus knew this too. So you hear this urgency in Jesus' final words to his disciples. They are a matter of life and death to him. They are all that matters. These are the words of someone who knows that the end is near, and so he speaks in these broad, sweeping, grand gestures towards love. He knows he doesn't have much time left, and so it is urgent. The Gospel of John chapter 13. When he was gone, he being Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son and in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer, Jesus says. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jewish leaders, I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And so, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone knows that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Christine Hydes and I are preaching this Easter sermon series called A Collective Murmuration. And we are drawing on this metaphor of a flock of starlings in concert. Each single bird listening to the seven birds around them And then each of those seven birds listening to the seven birds around them. And so eventually, every bird listening to each other so that they might fly synchronized in harmony, a flock of a thousand birds or more able to turn and pivot and migrate this direction and that. The synchronicity of starlings, for me at least, is in the realm of miracle, especially as I consider the ways in which we as human beings long for synchronicity. We want alignment, and yet time and again, we find ourselves divided, segregated, bifurcated, detached from one another. Our disunity 
highlights their unity and makes their unity look that much more divine, that much more holy, near to the heart of God. Just when I thought this starling metaphor might become outdone, overdone, we've, this is, I think, the fourth sermon in the series, and we have two more to go, uh, Beth Kirk called me up and said, I have a book for you. It was a copy of this book called Mozart's Starling about a starling that Mozart kept as a pet. The starling was named Star, which, you know, starlings are called star starlings because they have a star shape when they fly. Um, and Star came home with Mozart one afternoon because she was whistling almost perfectly Mozart's piano concerto number 17 in G, which he had just completed and sent off to a friend. Now, Starling's rival parrots, in their ability to mimic the sound and noise of everyday life, including instruments and tunes and even the human voice. So no wonder Mo Mozart was in love. No wonder this Starling came home with him. How could you not be? See here Mozart's motif and then the Starlings. He even wrote it down in one of his journals. He was enamored the confluence of starling and composer. A little shocking, beyond impossible, that this starling could sing his melody, but there it was, as real as anything. The starling's ability to mimic and impersonate is actually the sole reason that we have starlings in the United States. And there's a kind of a weird story. An odd, wealthy pharmacist and Shakespeare enthusiast, Eugene Shefflin, had emigrated to America in the 1800s, and he was a figurehead in one of these New York City's trendy acclamation societies, trying in every way he could to make his new home feel like his old home. And so in pursuit of feeling at home in New York City, he became obsessed with this very eccentric idea, he wanted to ensure that every bird from Shakespeare's works could flock not just in England, but also in New England, not just in Stratford-on-Avon, but in Central Park in Manhattan. And Shakespeare mentions starlings only once in all of these works in Henry IV, where, after the king forbids Hotspur to mention the name Mortimer, Hotspur imagines this elaborate revenge plot where he teaches a starling to speak nothing but Mortimer, 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 and to keep the king's anger still in motion. So it's this one teeny, teeny, tiny little plot point hiding among all of Shakespeare's works that highlighted the, the parroting ability of starlings so that Someday, in the 1800s, a Shakespeare-obsessed orthophile, a person who loves birds, Eugene Shifflin, might insist that starlings come to America. So, of course, this meant spending his fortune, ensuring these birds were transported, um, extremely difficult on a transatlantic steamship. But he was finally successful on a snowy March morning in 1890, when he set free 80 starlings in the heart of New York City, 
And these 80 starlings, scientists think, took about 80 years to breed and to spread until they went from coast to coast, from east to west, the population of some 2 million starlings today. So most of the time, these stories about starlings get tucked away in a little footnote, the story of Mozart's um, starling in particular. But Linda Lynn Haupt, who wrote this Mozart's starling book, found herself really enamored with the idea that Mozart might have a starling as a pet and that this starling might sing Mozart's concertos. And so she adopted a starling of her own as part of her research, and she, she actually rescued it from the local park district at five days old. Starlings are not a protected species in America, and her starling was set to be killed by the Forest Preserve employees, and so that night she paired up with a friend to rescue this starling and named her Carmen, which means song. Starlings are one of the very few birds in America without legal protection, and that's because starlings are a non-native species, despised. According to one bird watcher, they are the most hated bird in America. And so if you, keep, if, you, if you keep a bird feeder, maybe you know this, they come and eat all of the bird food, and, and your goldfinches have nothing. But they also can create just tons of ecological damage. Um, so, Bev, this is really hard on my metaphor about murmurations, that these birds are such an ecological disaster. They, uh, they can make up to $800 million of agricultural damage in a year. And they invade other birds' nests and squash their eggs and lay their own. It's obscene. Linda Lynn Haupt uh, documents all of this, and her book is fascinating, um, and I think that's enough about starlings for today. The ever-loving point of all of this is that our relationship with starlings is complicated, and so for me, written in red ink about, uh, across all of this is the story of environmental destruction, not just because starlings themselves cause environmental destruction, but because in previous generations, as well as today, we're a little blind to... Um, the possibilities of what it means to move one species from one place to another, or what any of our actions might mean for this good earth. Buckthorn in our forest preserves, algae blooms in Lake Michigan, emerald ash borer felling an entire species of tree across our little corner of God's kingdom. There is more ecological reason to scream and recoil than I can count. So the starlings evoke and symbolize in their own way the Anthropocene, this human-centered geological age we are in, which is changing the world in damaging ways, and we have yet to even begin to imagine what is ahead. The metaphor of murmuration is a reminder that we can and should and must work together in a collective synchronicity for the sake of God's green earth. So in this way, murmuration is an imperfect metaphor, a metaphor with heartache at the center. And I think that's true about Jesus' message on that Thursday evening before his death. Jesus' command to love, to love one another is a metaphor with heartache at the center. Jesus is doubling down on his exhortation to love because he has just seen love leave the room. 
He has just witnessed one of his own, Judas, leave the table, prepared to do the unthinkable, prepared to betray Jesus to the death. Do you know that in the thesaurus under the word betray in the English language is a synonym to be a Judas? If we want to conjure up any sort of evocative language about betrayal, this is the story that we point to. This is the moment across all time and place to which wordsmiths turn. Jesus' words of love have heartache at the center because Jesus knows what he is facing. He knows the betrayal he is about to endure. He knows it instinctively. Yes, maybe it's some sort of divine foreshadowing. He knows it because he is God. But also, I think Jesus is a human-attuned person who understands. And he's noticed the way that something is amiss with Judas. And that's what Jesus has been saying all along. Something is amiss, not necessarily just with Judas, but in relation to this whole human project of being together. The central message of Jesus' ministry is, it doesn't need to be this way. Don't let it be this way. Let me show you a new way. The central message of Jesus' ministry is, let me show you what love looks like. Here is what love looks like. Let me do this radical thing in your midst so that you know what love looks like. And then there he goes, healing the sick. And not just healing the sick, but drawing close enough to those who are sick that they feel loved and beloved and renewed. Then there he goes again, standing up to the prejudiced, to the bigoted, to the discriminatory authorities, breaking the ecclesial laws and violating the carefully trod but unjust social norms. And there he goes again, feeding the hungry. Jesus knows that the world at large is more like Judas than like him, saying one thing and doing another. And it's no different now. We say peace and we know war. We say may all be fed and there is hunger. We say let the little children come to me, and yet they know poverty and domestic violence and inequalities beyond imagining. Jesus' call to love is just as critical now as it was the day Judas walked out on him. Jesus' words of love, then as now, come alongside heartbreak. The barely 18-year-old white supremacist gunman at Topps Friendly Market just yesterday in the largely black neighborhood of East Buffalo is testimony that Jesus' words of love come alongside heartbreak. The nooses that were hung on Friday afternoon at Haven Middle School in Evanston a clear and time-worn symbol of racial hatred, sending threatening and frightening messages at a middle school, is testimony that Jesus' words of love come alongside heartbreak. And the now one million who have died in the United States from COVID is a testimony that Jesus' words of love come alongside heartbreak. Poet, theologian, and conflict mediator Padraig Otuma grew up in the Republic of Ireland near Cork. And no surprise, he has been ministering among the aftermath of the North, Northern Ireland conflict. He calls reconciliation the sacrament of goodness, which to me is just another way, a more poetic way, a beautiful way to express Jesus' command to love one another. 
Reconciliation is a sacrament of goodness. And in a poem, he writes, When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days, I've been counting lives. So I count one life, one life, one life, one life, one life. Because each time is the first time that that life has been taken. Otuma's words are a testimony that Jesus' words of love come alongside heartbreak. All right, I said that I wouldn't say anything more about Mozart's starlings, but this passage is so beautiful. Linda Lynn Haupt describes her embodied encounter of a starling flock in this way. She says, beneath a murmuration, I feel that I am kneeling in an ancient cathedral that ought to be silent, but instead whispers overhead with the gathered prayers of hundreds of years of pilgrims. But here is a much greater cathedral. The entire sky and the prayers are the light brushing of feathers. Amid the heartbreak of this life, we need this imperfect metaphor of the starlings who worship under the great cathedral of this morning's big clouded sky and who show us how to synchronize our lives toward the urgent and heartbreaking love Jesus so longed for. May we find the blessing of such love together. Amen.